Chapter 24 They slipped quietly past the city of Savannah and saw along the banks that the British were well prepared for war. Soldiers had overturned boats and small ships at regular intervals to use as defensive positions, and all the marshy land between the riverbank and the higher ground of the city proper was speckled with wooden fortifications. It wasn't the savannah Finn had left behind. It was darker, as if war had pushed the light from it, leaving a desolation of brown and gray where once had been green. The sounds of life were gone. The country near the city held its music back, waiting, wondering, when the crouching beast of war might stir. Finn's eyes turned northward, toward home. Two years had passed since she last saw it. She prayed the shadow cast on Savannah hadn't stretched so far as Ebenezer. She leaned against the rail and looked out at the familiar pines and cypress of the Georgia Riverbank. The city slipped away to the southeast, and gradually the land emerged from the gray cast of war and became itself again. It hadn't changed, not yet. The trees still rose straight and thin. They still shed their leaves and straw to carpet the forest in shades of autumn and rust. The same wet smell of pine and mud filled her nose. The birds singing and the sounds of animals splashing in the river were no different now than when she and Peter had walked in silence and threw stones to pass the time. No shadow here, not yet. When she left, she was a scared girl, running from the consequences of a scared girl's actions. Murder, whispered a voice inside of her. Bartimaeus's smile erupted in her mind as the rope snapped his neck. She shut her eyes. What would he think of what she'd become? A pirate. A murderer. Terrible things. He gave up all of that, and even though he left his old life behind, he hadn't hesitated to step forward and place his neck in the noose when they came for him. All because he'd protected her. And now she'd rendered his sacrifice worthless by her actions. Finn hated herself. She'd been smiling as she killed soldiers. Defane had seen her, and he'd approved. Something inside of her enjoyed it. No matter how far she ran from it, that smile lurked in the darkness, waiting patiently to rule her like a tyrant. But at this very moment, Creech was in Ebenezer, wreaking what havoc she couldn't imagine. If that smile could help, if that murderous tendril of spirit inside of her could stop him, she would embrace it. The river wound inland like a snake. Topper, renewed by the morning's action, no longer showed signs of exhaustion and worked fervidly steering the ship around the curls of the river. Even a mighty ship of the line could appear small and insignificant out on the open sea, but here, constricted amongst the trees, banks, and bends of a land-bounded world, the ship was unwieldy, awkward, out of place. It made the men nervous. Finn stood near the prow, straining her eyes through the trees, looking for any familiar stone, bank, or grotto that would tell her she was home. The ship crept along in silence. Every tree that slipped past pulled the invisible knots in her stomach tighter. Finn needed to see what was coming. She needed a better view, needed to know what to expect. She ran to the base of the mainmast and hauled herself up the ladder to the crow's nest. Topper's voice called out, asking if she was all right. She didn't answer him. She reached the top and looked fearfully out across the canopy of the forest. She didn't know what she expected to see, didn't know what she feared to find. Only a riddle of mottled brown and rolling yellow treetops greeted her. She felt better, though, more at ease, more ready to meet whatever awaited her. From up here she could see. She breathed deeply and dared to think that maybe everything would be all right after all. 
Peter was out there somewhere, in these very woods. She traced the line of the river northwest to a point where something stopped her eye. In a small bend of the river, some few miles ahead, she picked out a straight brown line jutting up above the treetops. A mast. The rattlesnake. Her breath caught in her chest, and she searched the line of treetops south of the mast. She couldn't be sure she saw it at first, but the more she stared, the more certain she became. Rising just above the trees was a white swan perched on a bell tower. The chapel. Home came back to her in a rush, and suddenly every smell and stone was familiar. She dropped through the gate of the crow's nest and swung down the ladder. We're almost there, Topper, she said. Then you best go find Jack. Topper put the monarch at anchor, keeping them downriver and out of sight of the rattlesnake. Every man armed himself with a musket, a pistol, and whatever blades he found that suited him best. They lowered the skiffs into the river and rowed to the shore in an uneasy silence. All eyes and ears strained for signs of trouble. Once they reached the bank, Jack climbed up into the cover of the woods and motioned for everyone to gather around. Most were running on nothing more than hope and adrenaline. All right, boys. I know you're tired. Stay lively a while longer, said Jack. As soon as we get the snake back, we'll make for open sea and find us a quiet port to disappear into. But first things first. There's no telling how many hands Creech has on board the snake. But he didn't waste time pulling out of Charleston, so I'm guessing there ain't many. Likely a skeleton crew. Creech will be anxious to get underway as soon as he's done with business ashore. So odds are most of the crew's waiting for him aboard ship. We're going to sneak up, quiet-like, right down the shore here, board the snake, take her quick as we can. After that's settled, we can look to settling up with Creech. Any questions? He looked the men over. When no one spoke, he turned to Finn. Button, this is your stomping ground. Lead the way. He thumped her on the back and pushed her out in front of the group. There were twenty-eight of them in all. Half were remnants of the Rattlesnake's crew. The other half were prisoners freed to man the justice. Finn didn't know any of the prisoners by name, but so far none had given any reason not to be trusted. Armand Defane crouched at the rear of the group, uncharacteristically somber. Finn hadn't thought him capable of anything other than murder and gloatish amusement, but here he looked almost nervous. Tan nudged her shoulder and urged her to action. She led the crew down the bank to the water's edge and then quietly upriver toward the rattlesnake. The fallen leaves on the ground caused her boots to slip on the sharply rising bank, and she stumbled along with one hand to the ground to stop her from falling. Troubled footsteps from behind told her the others fared no better. She'd walked through these woods, down this very bank a hundred times with Bartimaeus, foraging herbs amongst the grass and growth, never once worrying over how much noise she might make or who might see her coming if she didn't stay low. The effect was unsettling. She was a stranger in her own home. Her stomach churned with every step. She strained her ears, listening for even the slightest sound that might warn her of violence or alarm from ahead. The river wound left, and they followed it around the bend. It turned sharply to the right, then curled back to the left again where it ran nearest the orphanage. They could see the rattlesnake anchored upriver around the curve. Now exposed along the riverbank, Finn climbed back into the woods, where they would have less cover from landward eyes, but more concealment from the ship. She led them through the pines and out across the river-carved shoulder of land that lay between them and the ship. To her left, she could see the outer walls of the orphanage. More than anything, she wanted to run straight to the front gate to see what was going on behind that wall. But they needed to secure the ship first. 
She tried to put it out of her mind and kept her eyes fixed on the rattlesnake. When they approached to within a hundred yards of the riverbank nearest the ship, Finn caught the sounds of harsh voices on the wind. The sounds came from the chapel. The wind changed again and the snippets of sound were whisked away, replaced by the chirping of birds and the low babble of the river. She stopped behind a large fallen cypress and deferred to Jack. He crawled forward and peered over the tree across the last few yards toward the ship. Finn forgot all about the rattlesnake and fixed her attention up the hill, toward the chapel. She caught hollow thumping sounds, feet on a wooden floor. She picked out a woman's voice, loud in anger or fear. Button, pay attention, said Jack in a harsh whisper. He was talking to the group, explaining his plan of action. Finn didn't care. The sounds coming from the chapel consumed her thoughts. Tan nudged her. She turned and saw Jack stooped low and creeping through the brush, leading the men down to the river toward the rattlesnake. Tan nudged her again, beckoning her to follow, but she held back. Jack and several others crawled into the rowboat that Creech must have left to come ashore. Those that didn't fit in the boat clung to the side and held their muskets and powder horns out of the water. Finn watched as Jack quietly rowed the boat toward the ship. Tan beckoned again and she moved to follow. She could still catch up with Jack in the boat. Then, once more, the harsh tone of a male voice rang out from the direction of the chapel. Finn jerked her head away from Tan, away from the river, away from the rattlesnake. The voice came again and she made up her mind. Small steps at first, and then she broke into a run. Tan called out for her to stop, but she ignored him. The chapel was a hundred yards away. It was a world away. As she ran across the distance, she felt as if she were violating something sacred. She dreamed that when she came home, came back at last, that she would do so having put who she'd become behind her. She didn't want the sailor, the pirate, the murderer, following her. Not here. She left home to keep those things from this place, from these people, from Peter, and now she was bringing it all back. Worse, she wouldn't be able to hide it, to lie about it, to cover it up. If she meant to stop Creech, then she meant to bring death where innocence slept. She felt her blood rising. She meant to fight. And with it rose her shame, her guilt. Then she felt what she hated most, a rising sense of excitement. She was looking forward to it. She imagined Armand Defane smiling at her in approval. She didn't care anymore. She reached the chapel and flattened herself against the wall. Tan emerged from the trees and ran to her. Finn gritted her teeth and prepared a protest. He wasn't going to stop her now. So what's the plan? asked Tan. Finn relaxed and unclenched her jaw. Kill Creech, she said. Simple. I like it. Tan smirked and drew his rapier. He edged his way down the building and Finn followed. They slipped around the corner and sidled up to the first of the tall arched windows that marched down the flanks of the chapel. Inside was everything that Finn feared. Orphans filled the pews, more of them than Finn expected. In the past, there were rarely more than twenty. Now there must be fifty, quiet and meek in the pews, driven here by war, no doubt. Standing near the rear of the sanctuary, clothed in gray, hunched and crooked like a gargoyle, stood Sister Hilda. She guarded the children, her hands on the heads of those around her, channeling comfort and discipline. Her eyes, though, were turned away. Finn was thankful. She wasn't ready to confront that gaze. She wasn't sure she would ever be. The focus of Hilda's attention was Carmeline. She was standing awkwardly as if off balance near the front door. Her arms struck out at right angles, and her head was thrown back as if in the middle of a great laugh. Then Carmeline turned, 
and Finn saw the figure behind her. Carmeline's immensity had hidden him. It was Bill Stum. He had one arm wrapped around her waist and the other held a knife. He pressed the blade against Carmeline's throat, and it was nearly lost in the folds of her neck. Silhouetted in the door was Creech. In front of him, the floorboards had been ripped up and cast aside. Piles of dirt filled the doorway. Now and then, a shovel tossed a new cloud of dirt out of the hole in the floor. It was deep enough that only the diggers' heads and shoulders were visible above the rim of the hole. The shovelers were two teenaged boys, orphans. Deeper, shouted Creech. There ain't nothing down here, mister, argued one of the boys in the hole. Do as he says, child, snapped Hilda. Her voice was thinner than Finn remembered. Finn turned away from the window and crouched down out of sight. She pulled her cutlass from her belt and took a deep breath. It was time. She had to act. She started to rise, but Tan pulled her back down. Let him dig up whatever's down there. Then he'll leave on his own and we'll be waiting. Finn hadn't considered that. She didn't care for whatever Bartimaeus had stolen and buried. Creech, on the other hand, was ready to kill for it. If she rushed in to stop him, too many people were in a position to get hurt. Tan was right. They peeked through the window to watch and wait. If you'd care to tell us just what it is you're looking for, we might be able to help you find it, said Hilda. Creech turned to face her. Do you know the name Bart Gan? he asked. Bartimaeus, of course. He was our cook for nearly twenty years. What of him? said Hilda. She wasn't intimidated and held back none of her usual venom. Your cook stole a great deal of gold from me nearly twenty years ago. Nonsense. Bartimaeus wouldn't steal a crumb. He was as penniless as any orphan that ever darkened our gate, and that till the day he died. Bart Gan was as malicious a pirate as ever set blade to flesh. He was a thief, a murderer, and a lover of cheap wine and cheaper whores. Have any orphans here from the brothels of Savannah? Creech raised an eyebrow and a smirk threatened his lips. Hilda didn't answer. Perhaps he came here out of pity, looking for one of his bastards. As ironic a hiding place as any, I suppose. He was a good man, protested Hilda. Aye, good sailor, good pirate, good traitor. I never saw him coming, I'll give him that. When he made off with the gold, he caught me perfectly off my guard. Once you've debauched with a man, pirated with him, warred and whored with him, you come at last to think you know him, perhaps even trust him. But Bart was far more wicked than I. Often I wonder when it was he decided to turn. What was the precise moment his treachery was born? I never had an inkling of it. Creech paused and preened his mustache in silence. Then, when he'd stolen our fortune, he disappeared. Twenty years I searched for him. Twenty years poking in rotten little towns up and down the coast, and never once a whisper, never a hint. Made myself an honest man. Put away the pirate. Turned all my purpose to searching for him unhindered by the hangman's threat. To give up being a pirate is no small thing for one who gives himself to the life. But such was my hate that I cast it away. And then for years, nothing. Until at last the British caught up with him. I sailed to Savannah the moment I heard. But when I got here, what did I find? 
The bloodthirsty bastards had already dangled him. I was furious, demanded they tell me where he'd been hiding. But they started asking questions about me, about why. And I couldn't let them connect us, could I? No. Creech paced the chapel floor in front of Hilda as clumps of dirt flew up from the hole in the floor. Then, Bart's deception unraveled itself when that little whore of yours, that button, had the nerve to come aboard my ship. Finia, said Hilda with disbelief, you're mad. <laughs> Quite, he said with an arrogant sniff. I can't imagine what she thought to gain by coming out to find me. But whatever her little plan, it failed. I expect the British will be sending her to join old Bart any day, if they haven't already. Carmeline swooned, and Bill staggered against her weight to keep her upright. Sister Hilda's face turned a shade whiter. You lie! She hissed at him. Creech turned on her with an amused smirk. Before he could answer, one of the boys in the hole threw his shovel out. We can't dig no more, mister. There ain't nothing down here. We dung so far we just hit in water. Creech kicked the shovel back at him. You don't stop until I find what's mine, he shouted. We can't dig no more. Ain't nothing but mud, hollered the boy back at him. Creech walked to the hole and looked down into it. The muscles of his shoulders twitched in anger as he glared into the muddy pit. The bottom was flooded with water. The boys stood in it up to their knees. He spun around and grabbed a child from the nearest pew. Sister Hilda's nose quivered in anger as he dragged the scared little girl in front of her and pulled a pistol from his belt. Finn's eyes widened. It was Betsy. He jerked the girl by her arm and rammed the blunderbuss against her temple. His face twisted into a snarl of rage. Where is it? He said to Hilda through clenched teeth. Sister Carmeline worked her mouth open and closed like a fish, her face white with fear. Hilda matched his gaze. Where is what? she said coldly. He lived here twenty years, and you expect me to believe that he never said a word or spent an ounce? The small girl in his grip began to cry as he pressed the gun into her temple. It's not where the map says it is, and that means one thing. Someone took it. Where is it? Finn considered that Creech might be right. Would Bartimaeus have kept a fortune in gold secret from the sisters for so long? Surely they would have put the money to good use rather than let it lie in the ground for twenty years. If Hilda knew, she would certainly give it up before she let Creech harm one of the children. I told you, Bartimaeus was poor when he came and poor when he went. He never owned anything but the clothes on his back and that blasted fiddle. Creech didn't like her answer. He cocked the hammer of the gun. Hilda's nose froze. So this is what she looks like when she's scared, thought Finn. Carmeline staggered backward, threatening to faint. She forced Bill up against the wall, and he grunted and cursed while she mashed him against it in her infirmity. You'll answer me this time, or the runt dies, said Creech. Then, three things happened in succession that caused the room to explode into chaos. First, Sister Carmeline fainted away cold. She fell backward and pinned Bill against the wall with such force that all he could do was sputter, moan, and gasp for air. After a struggle, he managed to shift her weight away. She rolled forward and hit the floor with a thunderous boom that shook the building. Bill collapsed on top of her, groaning curses as he fought to regain his breath. Second, 
as Creech gaped wide-eyed at the ruckus caused by Carmeline's faint. Nut walked through the front door of the chapel and said, Hey, Captain, you seen Finn? Just as plainly and calmly as if it were the most normal thing in the world. The expression on Creech's face at Nut's appearance could only be described as groping, groping for some way to explain the sudden appearance of someone he knew to be far away, locked up, and possibly even hanged. Finn was scarcely less surprised than Creech. Before Creech could finish reacting to Nut's entrance, the crackle of musket fire echoed through the woods as Jack commenced his attack on the rattlesnake. Creech's eyes snapped toward the sound of battle coming up from the river and fell upon Finn and Tan peering in the window. Bill snatched a pistol from his belt and fired. The window shattered, and Finn heard the sharp crack of a ball as it pierced the air above her head. Finia! shouted Hilda. Her voice was a mix of surprise, disdain, and anger. Finn and Tan ran to the front of the building and through the open doors. Bill was red-faced and sweaty from his battle with Carmeline's bulk, and he crouched behind her unconscious form as if she were a fortification of war. He was trying to pack his pistol. Finn ran at him headlong and knocked the gun from his hands before he could finish reloading. The children screamed. They crowded into the far end of the sanctuary, hid beneath pews, crouched into the corners. Hilda hadn't moved. She stood between Creech and the orphans like a bulwark, upthrust and defiant. Her eyes lay steady on the girl in Creech's grip, as if she might stay his hand by will alone. Tan leapt across the hole in the floor, knocking Nut into it in the process. The two diggers cowered with their shovels held like weapons, fearing Nut might attack them at any moment. Nut lowered his head and tried his best to disappear into the mud. Tan raised his rapier to Creech, and Finn drew her cutlass. She felt the eyes of the orphans upon her. She knew some of them, and those she didn't surely knew of her. They were staring, open-mouthed. Loose the girl, demanded Tan. Creech smiled. A chill prickled Finn's spine. Gladly, he said. In one swift motion, he thrust the girl at Sister Hilda, tucked Betsy into his coat, and drew his sword. The small girl fled into Hilda's skirts, and Hilda's eyes turned on Finn. There was no welcome or thanks in them. Her nose quivered. Then the little girl, clutching at her skirts, looked toward Finn and screamed. Finn stared at the girl with a puzzled look before realizing the girl wasn't looking at her. She was looking behind her. She turned and felt a sharp pain in her left arm as a knife sliced it open. It was Bill. If she had turned a moment later, the knife would have been in her back. Before he could stab at her again, she swung her cutlass. He leapt to the side and swiped at her again with the knife. Tan took a step toward Finn, his instinct compelling him to act. Creech saw his opening and took it. He ran forward, sword held high, but Tan was no easy prey. He parried the blow. The two swordsmen squared off, each judging the other, placing upon the mind's scale weights of size, speed, experience, and cunning. Each calculated his opponent in the beat of a heart, and then they began a dance of savage grace. The clash of steel resounded through the chapel like music. Tan and Creech stepped in and struck, fell back and parried, a wicked parley of ringing steel and knuckles white. For all Tan's skill, he found Creech an even match. Creech had fenced and slain when Tan was no more than a child, and though he hadn't called his sword to action in many years, his blade was wakened now to evil deed, deadly, swift, and sure. Finn drove herself after Bill. She'd beaten him soundly twice before with nothing more than fists, and meant to end it now in blood. Bill frothed at the mouth like a dog. 
His hate for Finn was long nurtured. He wore it on his face like a mask. Again and again he sliced at her with his knife. Each time she dodged him and swung her cutlass back, he rolled and leapt, always narrowly evading her attacks. He was beyond his skill, beyond his endurance, urged on by rampant, seething hate. He'd hated Finn since Tun Tavern, hated her more since she'd bested him on the day of the mutiny. Here and now he meant to complete his hatred in death. Finn was desperate to be done with him. As she fought, she cast glances toward Tan. His fight with Creech raged across the chapel, overturning furniture, sending orphans fleeing from corner to corner. Both men had wounds open and bleeding. Tan bled from the forehead and left arm. Creech from his left side and cheek. Tan was no longer smiling. Finn flung herself at Bill again, and his boots slammed into her stomach. She doubled over and fought for breath. She would be no help to Tan if she didn't focus on Bill first. It was a stupid mistake. She was taking him for granted. His knife whistled through the air, and she rolled to the side, swinging her cutlass wildly. The blade caught his elbow, and he cried out in pain. Before she could gain her feet, Bill was on top of her. His blade descended toward her chest like a stab of lightning. She dropped her cutlass and flung both hands up to stop his attack. As his weight crashed down on her, a sickening moan blew out of her mouth, and he crushed the breath from her lungs. The blade stopped, inches from her neck. Bill's face was flushed red. His lips curled back in a snarl of yellowed teeth and cancerous gums. His breath stank of tobacco and drink. Thick drops of sweat rolled off of his nose and spattered on her face. All his weight was gathered behind the knife. She had no hope of holding back the blade for more than seconds longer. Something hard was biting into her hip. Finn cursed whatever was causing the pain. It was drawing her mind from the fight to keep the knife away. A fight she was losing. Slowly, inexorably, the tip of the blade closed its distance. The flesh beneath it crawled and prickled as if it could avoid the pierce. Pain in her hip again. She tried to call out for help, but she had no breath to utter the words. Her mind wandered again to the hard object pressing into her hip. It was her pistol. The blade slipped closer, less than an inch now. No time to think about it. She dropped her hand to her side and found the pistol. With only one hand holding back Bill, the knife closed its distance. The tip of the blade pushed through her skin and into her sternum. She loosed a ragged scream at the pain. Her hand fumbled to find the trigger. Bill's snarl was turning into a smile. The pressure in her chest was excruciating. She could feel the warmth of blood spilling across her skin. Then her hand found its prize. She squeezed the trigger and the hammer fell. Clack. Nothing. She squeezed again. Clack. There was no powder in the pan. She dropped the pistol and beat at Bill's back. Then a loud clang sounded in her ears, and Bill went limp. She screamed as the knife twisted out of her skin and fell to the floor. Nut was standing over her holding a shovel in his hand. A clump of hair clung to the spade. Help Tan! she yelled to Nut. Nut's usual stupor washed away. He turned his face to Creech. Finn stared up at him in awe. This wasn't Nut. It was Tom Nuttle, first mate of the Rattlesnake. His back was straight, his head held high. His face was taut and angry as necessity called up from inside of him what had so long been hidden away. He walked toward Creech with the shovel cocked back to strike. Creech was focused solely on Tan. The rhythmic peal of their blades dominated the room. 
Creech advanced on Tan again and again, pushing him, tiring him, waiting patiently for his defense to wane. Tan could make no advance. Creech was too fast. Then Nut was within striking distance. He lifted the shovel. Captain, that's enough, said Nut. His voice was strong and filled with authority. Creech turned and saw the shovel raised to deal its blow. She thought she saw fear in his eyes. Tan leapt forward to take the opening, but Creech was ready. He reposted Tan's attack and turned his eyes back to Nut. It wasn't fear in them. It was hatred. Damn you! He shouted at Nut. He pulled Betsy from his belt and took aim. Nut faltered. Finn's face turned white with horror. She was pinned to the ground under Bill's body. She struggled to roll him away, but there was no time. A heartbeat was all that stood between Nut and Betsy's waking. Tan stepped wide around Creech and swung his rapier. The blade sliced through Creech's forearm with sickening grace, and his cloven arm fell to the ground. Betsy, still sleeping, lay clutched within the hand. Tan didn't waste the momentum of his attack. In one swift motion, he spun and brought the blade high overhead to kill. But the stroke never fell. Creech hadn't given the loss of his hand a second thought. He tucked the stump of his arm into his side to staunch the flow of blood and drove his sword hilt deep into Tan's chest. Finn screamed. Tan stood motionless, his rapier held overhead, his mouth open, his eyes wide. Creech jerked the blade from his chest and Tan took a step backward, then fell to the floor with his hands pressed to the hole in his bosom. The wails of crying children resounded through the chapel. At the sight of Tan dying on the floor, Nut stooped. His features softened and his eyes glazed over as the part of him that had briefly awakened retreated back into the depths of his mind. Nut dropped the shovel and fell to the floor. He curled into a ball and trembled like a child. Finn wrestled Bill's body away and crawled toward Nut. Damn you, Tom Nuttle, shouted Creech. Damn the day I took you on and damn the day I let you live. Creech cast his sword aside. He plucked the shovel from the floor and raised it. Damn your willful soul! He swung the shovel upon Nut. I'll knock more than your wits loose this time! The captain rained down a volley of blows, and Nut threw up his hands and caught the shaft as it fell. Creech kicked Nut's arms away and wrenched the tool from his grip. He jammed the heel of his boot against Nut's neck and lifted the spade of the shovel to deliver his final blow. Finn scrambled across the ground toward Nut and saw Betsy lying on the floor, still held in Creech's fallen hand. But she wasn't close enough. Even as she reached out and took the blunderbuss from the hand, she knew she was too late. Creech's blow was already falling. Then, from the doorway, a voice. Tiberius Creech! It shouted. Creech froze. Armand de Fane stood in the doorway. His face was filled with wicked glee. Topper and the others from the monarch stepped into view. Creech's eyes locked on Armand. You, he said. His voice dripped with hatred. Armand sneered at him. Finn cocked Betsy and raised her arm. Creech cast the shovel away and lifted the remaining hand in surrender. His life hung upon her choice. On the floor between them, Nut shivered and cried and cradled his head in his arms. Creech was smirking. Finn closed her eyes. She made her choice. The gentle twitch of a finger, and it was done. Betsy awoke and spat hellfire.
The blast threw Creech against the wall and shook the building. He slid to the floor and lay still, beneath a red stain on the glimmering white sanctuary wall. Finn dared not look at Armand. She could feel his wicked smile upon her. She ran to Tan and knelt beside him. His skin was sallowed, and his breath came in ragged fits and jerks. Blood was everywhere. You bring your f- <coughs> You bring your fiddle, Finn. To see me off to the green, he said. Finn wept. Topper and the crew gathered around her. They bowed their heads and looked away when they saw Tan's wound. They knew what it meant. Tell Nut. Tell Tommy. I'll see him there, he whispered. His smile found his lips once more, and he died. Finn tried to quiet the sobs welling up inside her, while Topper and the rest of the crew lifted him up and carried him out of the chapel. The white floor where he fell was puddled thick with blood. Finn wiped her tears away and pressed her palms to the floor. Blood that she had spilled, caused to be spilled. Everything, everyone she touched turned to blood. She lifted her hands and wiped them across her shirt. If she couldn't escape it, then she would accept it, embrace it, use it. Tan's rapier, Tom Nuttall's rapier, lay on the floor in front of her. She picked it up and wiped the blade clean, then stood and tucked it into her belt. The inside of the chapel was wrecked. Pews were cast aside and overturned. Blood was spattered on the white of the walls and floor. Huddled in the corners, the children were quiet now. They were staring at her. Finn found Hilda's gaze at last. What have you done? whispered Hilda. After all the time that had passed since she'd walked away, Hilda still knew no forgiveness. Deep inside her heart, Finn longed to mend the wounds between them. Longed to be welcomed, comforted, embraced. Even by Hilda, especially by Hilda. But that crooked face stared back like graven stone, dry and cold. Carmeline stirred. Hilda rushed to her sister and fell to her knees. As Finn approached, Hilda stopped her with a word. Leave, she said with the slightest turn of her head. Finn stopped. Carmeline groaned as she returned to consciousness. Finn started toward her again, wanting to help, to see her, to be seen by her. Get out, ordered Hilda. Finn obeyed. She turned to leave and found Armand crouched on the floor, clutching Creech's severed arm in his hand. He pulled out a dagger and cut off the last two fingers, then tossed the wasted arm into the hole. Finn wrinkled her nose in disgust. Armand grabbed Creech's body by the ankle and dragged him across the chapel floor. Au revoir, mon capitaine. He flung the body into the pit and spat upon it. Bury him. As Finn walked out of the chapel, two boys were already at work filling in the hole. Creech bade them dig, his own grave. They lowered their eyes as she passed, as if afraid to look at her. This was what she had become, a terror to children, feared, not loved. Would Bartimaeus fear to look at her now? Would he order her away? The memory of him hurt, and she was thankful he wasn't here to answer her questions. She dreaded the answers he might give. Outside the building, Topper and the crew were waiting. Most were either bruised or had some extremity wrapped in fresh bandages, or both. Despite the injuries, the fight aboard the rattlesnake must have gone well to have been so short. Where's Jack? she asked Topper. Topper frowned. He's on the snake. Got himself hurt. 
Finn cursed herself. Another friend hurt. Will he be all right? He won't die, but he won't be the same. Before Finn could make sense of his answer, a horse and rider galloped around the corner. And all that had gone on, she hadn't had time to think about him. Hadn't dared to hope he'd still be here, still waiting. But the sound of hooves behind her brought years of hopes and longings thundering to the surface, like great whales breaching and gulping in life, rising from an ageless and unfathomed deep. Why was it so hard to turn around? One foot at a time. Steady. She turned. It was Peter. Finn stared at him, willing it to be true, and fearing to believe it. She couldn't speak, and for a long time, Peter didn't come down. After waiting so long to see him, she couldn't bring herself to violate the moment with words. It was perfect now, just the seeing of him. Words might tear it all away. Finn? He said at last, and climbed down. Finn didn't move, feared even to speak his name. The British are coming, he said. Then looking at the entire group as if he had only just discovered them standing there, he continued. Hundreds, coming up the road. They burned down the Dorsten Corner homesteads. Topper's eyes went up, and he ordered the crew to the ship. He slapped Finn on the back and turned to the river, yelling orders to get underway as he ran. They were alone. The sounds of the world died away, faded into the background of things that no longer mattered. They stood too far apart to touch, and too near not to want to. It was as if all the miles and time and tears that had kept them apart had now come thick into the air like a wall, and both feared to try themselves against that last invisible barrier. He was grown now, larger, taller, but weathered, as if time and memory had eroded him, worn him smoother. The skin of his face was pulled taut across his cheeks by long hours in the sun. The creases on his forehead ran deeper than those around his mouth, telling of more worry than mirth. His smile was closely kept, as it always had been, and she missed it, the smile he kept only for her. Peter stepped forward and pulled her into an embrace. The distance was crossed. Finn shuddered and cried. She buried her face in his chest and let herself rest against him. His hands were rough, calloused, and scarred. The boy was gone but she knew the moment he touched her that the man would send her away. He was holding part of himself back because he knew the giving couldn't be complete. He would send her away as surely as Hilda had, but unlike Hilda, his sending was a plea, not an order. You should see it, Finn. She could hear it in his voice. He didn't know how to say it. See what? Our home. Finished and waiting. Though she knew every board and batten, every nail and joint. She'd nearly lost it in the blurry dwindling of memory. Tell me, she said, and quieted to hear Peter build it anew in her mind. It's framed of an old oak, gnarled and bent but strong as the roots of Georgia itself. It's sided of cypress and pine, and rain brings the scent of it into the air like perfume. The field grows green and so soft that the scythe cuts it like a whisper. When I sit on the porch at sunset, I can almost hear the laughter of children in the wind. He lifted her chin and turned her face up to see him. His fingers were rough against her face, like braids of rope, and smelled of new-turned earth. But they were gentle, deliberate, and patient. It's no home till it's our home, Finn. It's only half a place.
They both knew she couldn't stay. Both refused to speak it. She could smell the grass, could see Peter working in the field, hear their children playing in the heather. But she could also hear the march of British boots. There could be no peace, no home, while war endured. I call it Shiloh, said Peter, breaking the silence. But what does it mean? Harbor of rest. In the distance, a musket fired. Peter looked up and turned in the direction of the shot. They'll burn it, he said. Come with me, Pete, said Finn, pulling his face back toward her. Peter shook his head. Mr. Hickory died last winter. After the British have come and gone, the town will need me to rebuild. She knew he would refuse. Don't fight, Peter. Promise me. You won't try to fight them. I'm not a soldier. I'm a carpenter, he said. Then at last he smiled. I don't suppose it would do any good to tell you not to fight, would it? Finn didn't answer. Musket fire again, closer this time. Don't wait for me, Peter. You don't know who I am anymore. She tried to push him away, but he wouldn't be driven. When at last he let her go, he mounted his horse and looked down, smiling and sad. I've been waiting for you my whole life, Finia Button. I wouldn't know how to stop now. He pulled on the reins and turned the horse toward Ebenezer. More musket fire popped and snapped in the distance, and the horse shifted nervously. I have to warn the rest of the town. Go, Finn, before they get here. Come back when it's all over and done. Come home. I'll be waiting. He didn't give her a chance to answer. He kicked his heels and galloped away. Finn stared after him, committing everything about him to memory. If she never came home again, she wanted at least to have the memory of him perfect in her mind. She'd take it with her to the ends of the sea. From the river, the sound of Topper shouting orders wove its way through the trees to find her, to pull her back from a world that belonged to her and Peter alone. Tears were drying on her face. She wiped the last of them away with her shirt sleeve and turned away from Peter, away from the orphanage toward the ship. She felt she had betrayed everyone by failing to stop them from being hurt. Bartimaeus's voice floated back to her. Terrible things. She shuddered. He had tried to warn her. Then she remembered Betsy. She ran back into the chapel, and there on the floor it lay, silent and awful. Its barrel was still warm with murder. She took it up. She needed it. She couldn't stand by and let the world decide her fate. To make her own way, she needed action. And action in war meant death, violence, murder if need be. Such were Betsy's gifts. She pushed it into her belt. One day, like Bartimaeus, she'd put it down. But not yet. As Finn walked out of the chapel, thoughts of Bartimaeus continued to come back to her. He was the one who had drawn her here, drawn Creech here. And for what? Nothing. The map had led to nothing. Then she recalled the words scrawled on the map. Standing here I laid me down, me spoils, me heathen crowns, to sleep in sacred earth redeemed, beneath the tower without a sound. She held her breath as the tumblers in her mind clicked into place. Bartimaeus couldn't possibly have buried anything under the chapel. Not the new chapel. Beneath the tower without a sound. The old chapel had no bell in its tower. She closed her eyes and let herself drift back, back through time to years ago. How many times had she run to her old bell tower for quietude and solace? Hundreds? Thousands? She let herself remember them. 
Then, without thinking, she let her feet guide her. Her eyes were still closed as she began to walk, slowly at first, then faster, finally breaking into a run, through the gates of the orphanage, past the dining hall, down the length of the orphan house to the door, to the space that had once been a door. She opened her eyes. She stood in the courtyard, now empty and plain. She looked around and knew for certain that her feet had not failed her. This was the place. She took a few steps forward, then one to the left. The ladder to the bell tower would have stood right here, she thought. This was where the map pointed. She could almost feel something hidden in the ground, calling up to her, crying out to be found. She dropped to her knees and felt the ground with her hands. Yes, it was here. She felt it. She knew it. Right where Bartimaeus had put it. She nearly cried out with excitement, but stopped herself. Why hadn't Bartimaeus spent the gold if it was here? He could have been rich. But she knew the answer before the question had fully formed. Me spoils, me heathen crowns. It wasn't a treasure to Bartimaeus. It was the past. Bartimaeus hadn't hidden out here to escape Creech. He hadn't died a pirate in hiding. He had told her the truth. He became a new man the day Reverend Whitfield saved him. The only cent of the treasure he'd ever spent was to buy the fiddle. What remained he buried, not to keep it hidden, but to put it to rest. To bring it up now would be the ultimate betrayal. She smiled. No, she wouldn't cry out for shovels and picks. She wouldn't breathe a word of the place that she, among all others, was able to find so easily. The gold would lie in the earth, and Bartimaeus with it, until the faithful were called into the sky. Finn stood and wiped the dirt from her hands. She looked around the courtyard one last time, scoring the place upon her memory, and then she left with a smile on her face. The sea was calling. <laughs>